Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Welcome to another edition of the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Colby Cole, and uh, today, again... Uh, I've been doing this uh, producer series on the podcast since I st- started it because I'm fascinated with the creative process in music and movies, but specifically music. I just love the people behind the scenes and the stories of how they made this art that we all know and love and the connection that they have to it may help our connection with it as well. So today we have a producer, we have a writer, we have an industry executive. His name is Salam Remy. What's up, Salam? How you doing? Man, pretty good, Kobe. How are you doing? Now, me and Salam go way, way back because yeah. the first time I met Salam <clears throat> was very early in your career when you were working with uh, a rapper from Philly. And at the time, I was the hip hop guy in Philly, I was literally just getting started in my role doing radio active. But uh, I remember your artist was MC Rel. And yeah, and, and so let, first, let's talk a little bit about your journey musically. So, you grew up in New York, so you clearly are, like me, a total hip-hop head because you have such a deep connection to hip-hop, but you also jumped into R&B, and you know, we'll get into all of the amazing R&B that you produced. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one theme I want to start with with you is your sound was always different than anything else. And you, of course, you could say that about any producer, but right. it was just different. Like it, every time you had a project, it was just really like, wow, what is that sound? So talk a little bit about your early journey. Um, right. So my early journey, I mean, ultimately, you know, from, from my birth, you know, my father, who was in the business and did many things as well, came from Trinidad, you know, late 60s. And then he actually was in a band with my mother's brother um, in Queens. And then that band at some point also included Larry Smith, et cetera, you know, who went on to produce a lot of Run DMC stuff. So ultimately... Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's not st- stop there, because you said you just blew by Larry Smith. Right. Larry Smith was the first rap super producer. Exactly. Like any MC, like yeah. any joints that really made a difference. Larry put me inside the Cadillac, the chauffeur drove away. Yes. The, the transfer from the Sugar Hill sound into what became part of the Curtis Blow sound. He worked on that stuff. He worked on the Run DMC first couple albums, the really important songs. He worked on the Houdini stuff and the things that sonically took hip hop to another level of radio plus being able to still be knocking hard enough to play in the fever and play in the clubs. Larry Smith was that bridge, but you know, Larry was from Hollis, Queens. My mother and her brothers grew up in St. Albans, you know, right adjacent to Hollis. It was all the same Andrew Jackson high school, the same area. And then my dad now had, you know, met somebody who said, come to Queens. I'm going to put you in the van and meet you with some guys. And he met my uncle and then he started moving around. And then eventually my dad went to Queens College as well. So he went to Queens College around a lot of the Jamaica boys, around the uh, Burt Reed, who went on to be a big producer with Crown Ice Affair and many other things. And you know, just a lot of people, you know, just like the, the great brothers, basically the music scene of New York. So I was born, you know, coming up as my father. His brothers were also musicians. You know, my Uncle Chris played bass, was one of Buster Williams' students. And then, you know, he's lived in the D.C. area, played with Brother Ah in D.C. in the co-ops and, you know, around the Sunrise Energy. Then my uncle Lennox was percussionist, 
played with Lonnie Liston Smith and then different people. And, you know, I really had music there. And then my mother's brothers, my uncle Joseph was basically a saxophonist, played with a lot of different people. And then also my uncle Thomas played the all platinum and also was a church organist. And then, you know, the generation before that, everybody was musicians. And, you know, my grandparents, grandfather's passed at the church or my aunt sang. So basically the, the upbringing that I had from day one was that I was the little kid who was also keeping up with grown man musicians from the jump. And I was also hearing that stuff. So, you know, I'm born in 72. So from the start of it. Yeah. I was going to say that was an incredible era in New York city. I always tell this cause I'm, I spent most of my life in Philadelphia, but my father mm-hmm. lived in New York city. So I spent my weekends and my summers, all my formidable summers in the seventies and eighties was in New York city. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing like it in the entire world. Exactly. Just the music was just so amazing. And there was so many great songs that only made it in New York, but you was doing pretty well if you made it in New York with a song. So you make it, you make it anywhere. That's you make it anywhere, right? Yeah. So you absorbed a lot of that, mm-hmm. a lot of that energy. And I mean, I didn't even know Larry Smith part. Now, a lot of people don't know Larry, Larry Smith. One of the most iconic beats in the history of hip hop is Sucker MC. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's probably one of the most used beats for rappers ever. And that's a Larry Smith. And I always remember, didn't he do the uh, I Want Action song, too? Yeah, Larry, Larry Smith and Davey D. I think they were yeah, all in yeah. Orange Crush. It was sort of like the birth of a lot of hip-hop beats was that particular um, track. So so then as a kid or like a young teen, as, as hip-hop is evolving you actually get a chance to jump on a Curtis Blow record, right? Exactly. So, I mean, the progression was that my dad did stuff, you know, in between that, like on my third birthday, you know, back to your heritage and mine's, um, my dad took me to the store to get a drum set and Elvin Jones was there. Elvin Jones, the jazz drummer who also played in different times with your uncle. Yep. So um, Elvin Jones put together a little drum set so for me. So I'm at, you know, at this point, I'm the little kid. I'm in music. I'm in school. I'm doing, uh, you know, my practice pad, Steve Reeves, another drummer. Anybody that played drums, my dad is doing different things in the industry, working with Belafonte, working with Tana Gardner, the heartbeat stuff, leading up to heartbeat, um, you know, different things. And I'm always seeing these different aspects from my dad. But then also... I'm helping out because I'm learning how I want to make beats. And because I was a child of hip hop, my dad also became, became a businessman. So he was now doing Northeast promotion. And now he goes in a record store and I want the Sugar Hill record and I want the Yellow Man record. I want anything that's hip hop. I can recognize it and I'm collecting it, rocking it, fearless for, you know, anything wow. that you enjoy, anything that's on Sugar Hill. Because, yeah. you know, at this point, you know, by 80. 182, you know, I'm nine, 10 years old, but I'm starting to say these are the songs I like, you know, seven years old for hip hop to hip it to hop to hip hip hop. Sugar Hill Gang was a big deal. And we understood these things as where we were getting it after the original Bronx energy, but it was still so fresh that I was taking it in. Then I'm taping records. So then my dad working with Belafonte, being around Beach Street, he was actually the first person to take Dougie Fresh in the studio. He had made a cover of Past the Dutchie that was called uh, Past the Buddha with Spoonie G and Dougie Fresh and Spivey. So he's wow. around Sly and Robbie. So I'm still taking in, watching Sly and Robbie make a record that Spoonie G is rapping on. You know what I'm saying? Nobody even knows that happened. Um, you know, just seeing all these different aspects of it. And then I'm also taping off the radio. So now I'm getting to be 12, 13, 14 years old. And he's asking me, yo, so what's happening? And then I'm like, well, this is what I taped off the radio. Mr. Magic played this and Red Alert played this. And I'm kind of keeping him to the pulse. So what he would do was, 
you know, I was living with my mom at the time, but what he would do is sometimes if he was picking up somebody on a red eye from JFK in New York, he would swing around and pick me up and then drive me to school in Jamaica, Queens or Thomas Edison. So when he would do that, Curtis Blow might be in the car with him certain days and different things. So then now they ask me, what's you taped? And I'm like, here, now I'm putting the tape in. Oh, this is Sweet Tea. She got a record called It's My Beat. This is this. So I'm telling Curtis. From Queens. Blow, from Queens too, right? All the way. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Her love bug. You know, Queens was yeah. where it was at. And between Marley right. Mall being the definition of the singular producer who's right. coming in and taking over the band with a drum machine and sculpting the sound and then having a whole crew. So we know Hybrid Love Bug, et cetera. But I'm playing them all the records. So in that, I end up participating in a record that they were making because they were like, well, now nah, your son said this and this and that. And then now I'm getting signed to Ask Cap in 86. And that record, Magilla the Durilla, I wasn't so much hands on, but I right. was still part of the process. But then Curtis Bowles' next album after that, Back by Popular Demand, was actually my idea and my thing. What you going to do? Back by Popular Demand, Curtis Blow. And that's what they did. They made it into the record. So the wow. Curtis Blow stuff was important for me. Um, on the level of me just hearing an idea that I had that was a fleeting idea and then look and it's like, this is the name of the album and this is a single. And it's like, okay, cool. And at that point, you know, eight years after Curtis Blow's first coming out with the breaks. So of course the things had moved on in so many different ways as far as, you know, this is 88, 89. And now we all, we had Jungle Brothers. We were even past the BDP, Rakim era. We passed the Run DMC era. And every three years during that time, hip hop moved. But I was yeah. able to be there and then, you know, start earning my keep, start figuring out how I can get a little drum machine and then the keyboard. And then I'm starting to make beats with different people. And by the time 89 comes around and I graduated from high school, my father had now gone from being a promotion person at the label to having his own label deal. And he had MC Rail and the House Rocker sign, MC Rail from Philly. And then he also had Chuck Chill Out and Cool Chip sign. And that was crazy because now as I'm moving in with my dad, when I'm starting to go to college, now down the hall is our studio and, you know, classic concepts, which had, you know, the vid kid and Ralph McDaniels, the video music box crew was subletting part of that office, subletting part of our studio space. And then now I'm looking up and it's like Big Daddy Kane's in my hallway and now everything is there. So I'm pretty much moved out of high school right into the middle of Hip Hop Central. Chuck Chill Out being on the radio, you know, Chuck Chill Out, Red Alert, Molly Maul comes by to see my dad. You know, so I'm sitting there looking like, yo, Molly, what's up? And this and that. And, you know, I've been to Latin Quarter. So I saw front seat because my pops was, you know, doing, he did R&B music, but it, because he was an executive and still participating in hip hop, first as a producer, but then as the executive with these people signed to him, it took me everywhere, and I was able to be kind of like parallel in a different way. Jermaine Dupree was on tour with Houdini, with his father being Michael Molden in it. Yep. But I was in a different space where I was more on the studio side. Yeah. Well, and 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 I'm going to say this now, but as we go through it, you're going to find that Salam Remy is the Forrest Gump of hip hop, like and music, because <laughs> you've experienced like in that little bit of period, like '75 to like '89, '90, so much happened on the backs of hip-hop and then we didn't even get into it like yes you you lived in st albans queens i mean ll came out of there you know uh tribe called quest irv Gotti. like i mean it's so many people in the business that kind of grew up around where you grew up and touched hip-hop and and queens was just such a i always say this about queens like even though the hip-hop started in the bronx it was the borough of queens that birthed like raps superstars and that Listen, was Russell, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Russell took yeah. and pulled it together. And, you yeah. know, at that time, like from 76 to 86, I lived on Springfield 
Boulevard and Linden Boulevard. It was the only McDonald's in the area for Hollis, Lawson, Queens. So I would see everybody. My mom said, don't leave your block. Don't leave the block with your bike. I'm looking and I see Bismarcky, Salt and Pepper, DMC. I see Run Drive By. I know what car they got. You know, everybody knew what the rims. <laughs> All the rims on the DMC and a blue logo. Yeah. I don't know what he was doing in that Nova. Must have been his voice call. But that yeah. McDonald's there was so key, and they couldn't get out of the McDonald's unless right. they passed my house. So I'm sitting there on my bike, like taking it in. But I'm still at a front row seat to everything that's happening. So the Queen's energy, as far as seeing all of that stuff, it was so dope because of the fact that, you know, some one time I asked somebody about Inglewood in LA and I was like, what was it with Inglewood? There's so much rap. It's like, maybe they had a little bit more opportunity. It was a little bit more, you know, still the hood, but you had a little grass there. Right. You had somebody that might have a basement and they might have a little thing going on. And that's really what kicked in for us. Like I saw so many things firsthand and being away from my dad, like being with my mom, I grew up in that, you know, even in high school, like, you know, the cast I went to high school, mathematics who drew the Wu-Tang logo was in my high school class. You know what I'm saying? Like so many people were just like directly in school with me. Akinelli, I went to junior high school with that, you know. So rap, many- rap, one of rap's first dirty MCs. People think about Luke, but Akinelli was, again, a Queens rapper, and he had all them joints back at that time. So you, exactly. man, you were touching a lot of different energy and then your, your guy you know the famous story about mathematics was that he got 300 bucks for that logo or something like that we was all in art class and Thomas Edison together so he always be like you the first producer I knew because I actually was producing at the time when we were in high school right. I had records out and then he was DJing with this I think it's cool called True Force or something like that right. but you know just in general we knew each other all coming up so now when we're getting into business and doing stuff I'm like yo like we really knew each other, and I was really Akinelli would say, "Yo, he had a drum machine in like seventh grade, and I had a little keyboard I could program on the cheese box that I was doing stuff." So it was just really, it was a blessing for me to have the grassroots of having my father be in the business that I was able to now pull up and do things. But also, I was in it. Molly be like, "Oh, you had a twenty-four track in your basement." I was like, "Yeah," but then Molly pulled up, and I was like, "Yo, Molly, what's up?" You know, really, my breakthrough besides working around my dad was that. Molly came by and I saw that he let um, Joe Fatal and Lost Professor co-produce Game Type and maybe one more song on the Intelligent Hoodlums album. So I was like, yo, Molly, you know, so some co-production because I didn't know Molly would do that. He's like, what you got? Some beats? I was like, cool. So I took him down to my room down the hall from my dad's studio and I had two crazy records in the S950 and I played him a bunch of beats. He's like, yo, make me a tape. So I made him a tape and then he took three or four joints for Craig G's second album. Now that's more like it. And that was so important for me because of the fact that I eyeballed Molly Maul, the guy who everybody was trying to figure out, this is the sound. He was on the radio. He knew what to do. But sonically, he knew how to engineer it. I watched him take my bedroom beats into now being Molly Maul Productions. And that was so pivotal. This stuff to this day that if I sit in the studio, I still pick up from those moments of watching what he did, sped my track up. He made it more intentional. He didn't just say this beat is playing. He made it knock. He he pulled things together. He added the right elements. And just watching that, that's still a lot of my blueprint to this day. You know what I'm saying? Like anything that comes up, that was so important. Just as much as me seeing my father being a musician and then being executive and everything else, it was so important watching Molly Maul, who... I idolized for the time and still to this day, like I said, he is the guy that every producer, DJ, premier, everybody wanted to be Molly Maul. Yeah. Because he was that guy. Watching him touch my actual music, like, whoa, okay. 
I didn't have it together. This is what I need to learn. And that's still that focus that comes forward. And that was really the start of it being there. And then also Chuck Chill Out. You know, Chuck Chill Out was on the radio and Chuck and Molly were on the radio in different ways. And then him being around and then Funkmaster flexing myself with Chuck's two gophers. So I was everywhere that Chuck was at. You know, my dad be like, you go and take so long with you. So he meets some people. So I would go and I would be around everybody in hip hop and then Flex would be driving. And me and Flex ended up being there. And so Chuck became the voice of the mic. And then, you know, came from Master Flex on the one and twos. And then now I'm the producer. I'm standing there writing down the records. They're using my turntables. I'm in it. So then now I'm making better records, not because Flex is my friend, but because I'm in the booth with him at Red Zone, at Home Base, at the Muse. You feeling the energy of what's happening? I was in it. Like, I was yeah. totally in it 24-7. Like, I'm listening to the other station. And then, like, yo, they're on commercials. Play the Cypress Hill. Like, we're programming it back and forth to the point when he finally gets to Hot 97. He's like, yo, I'm up here by myself. I need you to come with me. You know, I'm like, all right, cool. So I'm now a successful producer at that point. But I'm at the radio every Friday night, whatever time he's there, writing down the songs, telling them what's happening on the other side. And then him and Angie Martinez now speaking. And I'm really at the core of what that station became for the nation, but also there was nobody else there. You know, so there's so yeah. many, I call them intimate conversations because it was things that only me and him know that we saw together. We both looked and said, did you see that? I saw that too. Okay, let's get it together. But then he took it you know, to this day to his radio energy and I took it this day to my production energy and I helped him with certain things back and forth. But it was really important for me to have an idea of how to deliver a record for certain energy and really know the standard of it. And that's why, you know, as you briefly mentioned earlier, I'm able to make records that are different because I understand the people. I don't have to go in the copycat, you know, all the frequencies that are in the club. I'm going, which frequencies are missing? Right. Which frequencies can happen that don't happen already? And that's really where it comes from. Me being basically a New York club radio DJ in the studio. One of the artists that you work with in the early 90s that had some success, but not tremendous success. But now that I look back on it, on the sound, right. they were like different with Ziggy. And I did not know till this moment that you work with Ziggy. Yeah. Shout out to my man, Sincere Thompson, who was the, the great uh, record promotion guy. And that was his artist. Um, and I remember him like Toss It Up and all of those songs. And that was different. Sort of like what Rel was when the Rel MC Rel was different. That song was like, you, you probably don't realize it, but I think you were like 20 years ahead of, ahead of on, on that song. Like, I think 20 years later, if you would have released that, mm-hmm. it may have been a different reaction. But that beat alone was just another level beat. And it it's something that kind of caught, you know, captured you. Um, but the same with Ziggy, though. Ziggy's album, that was a pretty good album that you guys did. And, and you cool. did those songs i did all of it i mean so basically what ended up happening is while i was while i graduated high school and i was living with my dad and i'm like okay i'm gonna do some music this and that but i was still going to school for business management it was still the thing where your parents are like yeah man but get your education so you know you have to have your speech when you're five i want to be a fireman when i'm 10 i want to be a policeman i know when i was in high school hey i'm gonna work on computers because the whole world's going to be on computers so i got to learn how to do it so i went to a technical vocational high school to learn computers and then i didn't really want to do that so when i got to college it was i was business management even if i work at mcdonald's at least i'll be the manager it was my phrase but then i took business management for those years but at the same time every day i get out and dump my 
notebooks out of my bag and then I'm putting records in and my sequencer and then go in the studio and I'm helping Bobby Condors work that BLS in the back. He was Fred Bugs, um, you know, assistant PD or assistant MD. So Bugs and Bobby had the room in the back. So I'd be in there and Hal Jackson's records sitting around, whatever Molly didn't catch already, I'm finding breaks. And I'm like, ooh, Bugs, can I take these home and put them on that? I'll bring it back and, you know, I'm hustling doing what I got to do. So Bobby's like, yo, I'm going to do some remixes. So I start helping Bobby and the two things, three things that happened in 92. Um, one was in 91, I'd done some Zim- demos on Jiggy and when I did the demos, they got signed to Polydor. So then I got Sincere out of Wild Pitch and brought him over to be the promotion person there because I needed somebody to work it. And being that I was at the radio station, I knew Mark Money Green and Harry Fobbs at EMI. So I had Harry check out, rest in peace to Duke, the great Harry Fobbs. Yeah. Also had Sincere come over and Sincere ended up getting the job because I needed someone to work the Shiggy album. And then the Shiggy album, you know, I told my dad, look, dad, I mean, I'm in class, but I can't hear what the teacher's talking because the beats are in my head. So I need six months out of school to finish this. So he said, look, you can do six months to finish this album. But then if you don't got no work after that, you go back to school. And I was like, deal. And I never had six months where I didn't have something flowing in a major way um, ever since. So, so Bobby Connors is kind of what led you into the remix thing because the remix thing kind of changed your trajectory of your career as well, right? Well, it was a kind of a balance. So Bobby was doing remixes and then I was going just programming. And what I would do with Bobby was anything that was used because hip hop was such a... Um, break exclusive thing if you use the break for say mac daddy for instance you know that was a beat that d nice used for crumbs on the table biz used for toilet school rap uh biddies from the bk lounge all these different records so i put them in the reggae pile and then he was coming up with acapellas and different things so even Supercat, that was direct reggae you know that i ended up making because of the fact that I looked at, you know, I'm not going to use it for hip hop because I can't come in with the exclusive thing. Toss it up. You know, somebody just said there's a bunch of dancers. You no, know, I went to the guy sound from there first and we did the song called Born Black. But then he's like, I want to bring my friends. They dance for everybody. YZ, Special Ed. And I'm saying they dances. I'm like, I ain't giving y'all my exclusive breaks. You crazy. So I gave them the toss it up beat. Just like, hey, you know, it was almost like a practice test beat with all the familiar breaks and James Brown and everything. It was. Like, now that know, I think about it. Yeah, it was like sort of like a medley of beats. Yeah. They actually killed it. And that song got them their deal and the toss yeah. it up and the energy was right. The and energy. then, of course, that and Mac Daddy and then Supercats Get A Red Hot, that was my 92. It set me off in a whole nother yeah. way where it was I started doing remixes, but I was actually doing them earlier than that because what I learned to do was to build tracks around an acapella. And then when I build my track around the acapella, the track is more solid. Then I just get rid of the acapella. Then I go, yo, I made this beat. I was going to give it to Molly for Craig G, but if you want it for this Latifah remix, so me and Rashad Smith did a Latifah remix, enough of the rough stuff. And that was my hustle. I've run up in people's office with one of my beats with a hot acapella on it because, you know, I'm from Queens. We landed the blend tapes. Dirty Harry, my boy from around the way, we'd be doing blend tapes since high school. And then I'd just be saying, I'm blending the hottest acapella because I'm at the radio station, so I got all the access. And then I'm playing stuff, and then sometimes Chuck might play, like how he used to play, Red Alert used to play 45 King remix. So Chuck might have played a Chill Rob G remix I did on the air. This long Remy remix. So whatever, you know what I'm saying? That was kind of positioning myself. But most of all, the education was that I knew what was going to work in the clubs. 
I knew what was going to work with the radio. I understood what it was like when the DJ got that manila envelope and popped it open and then got that record and he put it down and he's trying to decide, oh, I understood what that first 30 seconds needed to feel like. And even to this day, when I post on my Instagram, I pretty much make it into a reminder to people that 30 seconds of a song can change your mood for the whole day. So this is our job to be able to put sonics together that actually affect people. And sometimes it's by going the other way. Sometimes it's putting all the music and sometimes it's removing all the music and letting the vocal sit in front. It's how it drops. It's how the man can cut it up. It's how you actually get that emotion tied into it. And, you know, I learned those days as a remixer gave me, you know, those chops. But then I started producing. And what happened right after the 92 era was 93, the Fugees, where I actually was producing the new vocals on a song of the same title, but it had nothing to do with the original song. I wasn't just using the acapella and just making an arrangement. I was actually in there and taking the talent and bringing something else out of them and allowing that to happen. And that really transformed um, a lot of my career because I realized that it was no longer about the song, no longer just about the beats. It was about the songs that was on the beat that was going to make it worth. Well, you're being you're being a little too humble. Uh, so let me let me uh, let me throw some some praise on this. Um, one song that you produced became a mega hit was the Here Comes the Hot Stepper. Yes. Which is still timeless. Like, I mean, it, it, they're TV commercials with uh, Here Come the Hot Stepper in 2022. And it, was that a result of Ghetto Red Hot? Ghetto Red Hot was like, if you don't know Ghetto Red Hot Supercat, that remix. Mm-hmm. And again, this was the remix era before Diddy. Because a lot of people like to give Diddy that that crown of the remix guy, right? Mm-hmm. But before Diddy, you, you know, there was just everybody would do a remix. And a lot of times the remix would just be taking the vocals, like you said, and just putting a, a fresh new beat on it. But that fresh new beat would, would change the dynamic. So mm-hmm. Here Come the Hot Stepper was just like, that was a pop record. That was like big. It went all the way. So yeah. what happened with Here Comes the Hot Stepper was, and then I guess, you know, also big up Pete Rock, because Pete Rock's Shut Him Down remix changed everything. That's true. You know, him putting vocals on it. You know, Puff did the Jodeci stuff. But then, you know, I had my lane, but definitely I was changing the trajectory of careers via remixes, and Pete was doing the same thing. Yep. And Puff was doing the same thing in his own way. But basically what ended up happening was Ainy Kamozi had come to me. He had, you know, some reggae records and hits during the 80s, and then he had a record at that time called... Um, Hot Stepper, that was just I'm stepping in hot this year. Yeah, yeah. Who like it? So that was a big yeah. reggae record, you know, and us being New York, Jamaican culture is a part of New York culture. Yep. So when David Sonnenberg, who actually went on to manage the Fugees, and he was managing Biz, who I was working with at the time, and managing Nod and Akinelli and everyone, had called me and because he had met me during another chance thing prior to that and said, hey, you know, would you like to meet with Ainy Kamozi and there might be some things. So I did demos on Here Comes a Hot Stepper. And it was really similar to the Get a Red Hot feel. But also at that time, Ainy was like staying with some friends in the projects in BK, and he was watching DOS Effects and Cypress Hill and all that stuff. So the song was written on a similar to Get a Red Hot beat. I think I might even use the same drums or something similar. So the original Here Comes a Hot Step, it feels like murderer, but feels yeah. like Get a Red Hot. But he turned around and was saying, I know what Bo don't know. Touched him up and all that stuff was DOS FX influence. And wow. then na 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 from Cypress yeah. became na 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 Wow. Literally taking DOS FX and Cypress Hills vocal stuff and now putting his omnilyrical gangster spin to it with I'm murderer. Murderer. 
which is wow. we knew from Shabba Rake's roots and culture, and of course, Lady Anne, informant of the area, murderer. So it just became all that stuff. And then what ends up happening is it was on a compilation on Columbia. I was doing all the remixes, running out of the buildings, getting everything. Was there. Also, big up Vivian Scott, who gave me my Vivian Scott Chu now, who gave me my first remix in 89 with Leotis's Who Child on my own, but then also has signed Patra and Shabba Rinks and Little Vicious to Sony. So I was running in and out of there producing Patra, which Patra is actually my first plaque for Think um, featuring Lynn Collins. And, and, and the remix for Worker Man was amazing. Yeah, I was just on it because every time yeah. somebody needed something for a single, I was being that bridge. But what ended up happening with Ani Kamozi, because I was doing so many remixes, basically my concept was this, and you're appreciated as a DJ. So when we used to be in the red zone, I'd be with Flex in the booth. And we would have segments. And sometimes I would be with Bobby Connors who would be playing out in clubs too. Right. So we would play the old school R&B session as part of it. You'll be riding to the top, outstanding, you know, funky sensation, all that stuff that you heard coming up, you know, the Frankie Crocker era of New York. Yep. Those records would play in the middle of a section in between the real reggae section and in between the hip hop of the day section. So when we were doing Get Red Hot in those remixes, I would literally use the hip hop is beat because now that was a segue out of the reggae into the hip hop or vice versa. So then I got bored because everybody just started doing it and Kenny Dope had the super cat done down and it became even like party records, you know, the Crooklyn clan and kind of like what Fat Man Scoop was doing earlier. So Kenny Dope was just sample a piece of different things and make it work. But I was like, you know what? I was just, I get bored with styles. So I kind of moved on. I was like, you know what? I'm going to do something different. So what I ended up doing was saying, instead of bridging the hip hop section to the reggae section, I'm going to bridge the old school classic section to the reggae section. So in that space, I did a series of remixes and then I would tell Flex, this is what I'm doing. And Flex actually would, you know, bridge it all out and, you know, figure out how he was going to. So I did uh, Let's Get It On for Shaba remix where I use Don't Look Any Further. I did Supercats um, South Central remix where I use Outstanding. I use Annie Kamozi. Um, <laughs> heartbeat, and then I did Mega Banton, Soundboy Killing, using Barry White playing your game. Flex did a thing for Lady Soul where he used the dum dum da da dum. We're actually going into it and using stuff because I created a section of the party where now we had all these old school R and B records that were now the hip hop records. This is prior to Puff doing that run. So when I was doing the Supercat mix, because he had done a remix with Biggie in Third Eye, Jesse West, for Biggie's, um, for you know, Supercat's Dolly, My Baby, while he was working on my life, I was doing a similar thing with the hip-hop and reggae. And Here Comes a Hot Step became the first sample of an 80s R&B record you know, that became a number one pop single during that era. And the irony of it all is that my father... Um, arranged and put together the whole entire Tana Gardner album prior to the single Heartbeat. So the Work That Body album, he's down on it. And, you know, Kenton Nixon be like, oh, your father was my first arranger. The track to Heartbeat was a leftover track from that album that he never got credited on because we were away in Monaco in 79. Right. And, and recut the track with, you know, Tommy Harris and, you know, some of the other bass players and other musicians and recut a track over that he had came up with off of it's just same thing, thing, but that's where the energy of Heartbeat came from. Mm-hmm. So now when I sampled Heartbeat 
for here comes this hot stepper. We had it out before the sample was clear. My father was able to negotiate a deal because basically they knew that he was he never got his just due right 15 years prior but it now it came back and now to this day you know here comes a hot step it does three million a month on spotify today right now like we're still that, that record still producing as much for me as it not did now as it did in 95 and that's the blessing but also the blessing was that it came back around from something at the root of it that was something that my dad worked on whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. What kind of money were you receiving at that time when you were, like, because Hot Stepper was, that was probably your first massive record, right? That was my biggest pop single. What does that money look like for you at that, in that moment when you do that for an, an artist that the masses wouldn't know? It was great because basically that deal for that song, I think it's like split the the points between me and him because it was like a production deal that I'd done that one single under. But then also during my first publishing deal term, I had that and also Fuji La off the score, which came out right after it. Right. So those two songs are really the anchor of my catalog and really just, you know, to this day, like I said, it's a, it's a global smash record that still has replay value. And then even just last year, I had like nine different Spanish versions between Nicky Jam, you know, and Daddy Yankee and Pitbull and so many different people utilize it over and over again, just as a recurrent note. So I have publishing on so many different records just because of, but you know, it took me into seven figure space between that and the Fuji's. Let's go back to the Fugees because I remember a lot about the Fugees because uh, Chris Schwartz, I knew Chris Schwartz and Rough House Records was in Philadelphia. And of course, JD came down there and gave them Criss Cross and Cypress Hill. And But the Fugees was like a really big deal for Chris. He right. loved what they represented. And so there was a certain passion that he had for them, but they just didn't have the right records. But then you come along remixing Nappy Heads first, but then Vocab. And that really set up the score because that album was dead. They didn't sell anything. And then yeah. you remixed Nappy Heads, which was just an amazing. You also knew about the club thing, too, because you were you could then the songs were a little bit more up tempo. So all the DJs loved it. Now you tell me about Bobby Cotter's and Funk Flex, so it makes sense. So now DJs are just rocking this in the club because of the energy. And all of a sudden, the Fugees are. You know, people are paying attention to the Fugees, and then we come to the score. And then the, you had the first single, Fuji La La. Talk a little bit about the creative process. When you remixed the Fugees, did you know them, or was it? And then when you got the Fuji La, that's when you work with them, or how did how did that process go? So what happened was because of the fact that I was doing all of the Jamaican artists, um, you know, because my dad's Trinidadian, but I'm almost an honorary Jamaican at this point because I was working with all the Jamaican artists. First, some through Bobby Condas, but then also through Vivian Scott. You know, me and Specialist still had Omi. You know, he had Patra and Matt Cobra and Shaba, but now we still had Omi a couple of years ago with Cheerleader. So we right. still are totally tightly linked. But what happened with the Fujis was that Jeff Burroughs, who's you no know, industry vet and marketing master, was working at Columbia and he was their product manager. And he heard the record I did for Mega Banton, Soundboy Killing, the remix I did, and said, 
you know what? If I can get something like this on the Fuji's, you know, the Haitian, there's something that could work. So then he asked his roommate at the time, I think Jessica Rosenblum, who did it? And, you know, he, she asks Flex. And he's like, oh, Salam. So he plugs me in. But I'm already in the building working with Faith Newman on stuff. I'm already in the building working with Maxine Stoll, the other A&R. So when he calls me, like, oh, really? So what's up? What you want to do? He plays me a video of them playing vocab, acoustic. And I'm just like, all right, cool. Who's the manager? Because I'm clear on the business and what needs to happen. And I'm still right. 20, 21 years old. But I'm a vet because I've been around. I'm outside. I'm into promotions. I'm at the clubs. I'm in the building. You know, Pop showed me how to hustle. And I, I never let off the hustle. We lived in middle of Manhattan because I'd be in the label before you get there and then walk out before you walk out. Right. You know what I'm saying? And make it happen. So what I did was... I got. I said, you know what? Let me take a meeting. He said the manager is David Sonnenberg. I'm like, all right, perfect. I know him. Cool. That makes sense. They come through. We do the meeting, and then Clef was like, "Yo, you got to meet the other two people in the group, which were Why Clef and Lawrence." So, at the time when they did their album, you know, this thing moves really quickly. They would and still in the grimy style. They were still in you know kind of the Onyx vocal level. Right. And then the album comes out, and that's not it no more. Everybody's chilled out. So I got with Clef. I played him the acapella of J. Rules Come Clean and Nas's It Ain't Hard to Tell over the basis of the beat for Nappy Heads. He's like, ooh, okay. So you want to run hard? The rhymes with what? It ain't hard to tell. My first and then Cuff comes back. You want the battle swing? I bring. He comes down to the tone of what those records were. He's like, you got to meet the girl in the group. She's really dope. You got to meet Proz. He comes back with Proz and Lauren. Proz is like, yo, I know you, my man Kobe. You know, my boy Kobe Brown, big up Kobe, he still works at Sony. He was at Flavor Union and Perspective yep. and different things as and all. But also when he was in college, he used to hang out in my sessions when he was interning at Tommy Boy. So Proz and Kobe were in college together. So I already had a familiarity with that. And then when I met Lauren Hill, she was in the space. And basically we got in and I knew how to make a record. You know, big up Taish Harris, who was also at Columbia. Yeah. Legend and Flex would be like, Yo, what are you doing this week? I'm just like, I'm working with the Fuji. He's like, You know, Flex is Jamaican, so he's like, But doof, bof, right? Keep calling me, ah, good luck with that one, right? But I understood how to make these records. I'm a club DJ, radio DJ head, so it starts off, burp, 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 burp. you're nappy heads, you know. I had Clef rhyme for 13 minutes and then I dropped that first piece. Chiba Chiba Y'all, I'm a Libra Y'all. It had something else. If rap was extinct, I'd be the last breathing dinosaur. Damn, take that out. Chiba Chiba Y'all, I'm a Libra Y'all. The snares popping real loud, you know, similar to a war tour. The whistle at the beginning, build real low, and then the snare comes in loud. That means you turn it up when the, the horn is real low. And then the snare pops in your head. The bass is heavy, feeling like Gangstar's Dwick is that same bass tone. Everything in it, I made sure that the sonics of it were rock solid. And then Clef now gave you a verse that didn't make you, I would say, you're not going to spill your drink when this is playing. Right. <laughs> it's like, don't make my needle skip. No, it changed everything. That changed everything. This is float. Chiba Chiba, y'all. I'm yeah. a Libra, y'all. I understand the generation of DJs I'm talking to. I understand that they're yeah. going to hear that and be like, oh, word. All right, Chiba Chiba. What do you know about that? So they letting it flow. And by the time they finish coming at that beginning, they're going to let it flow. Oh, the girl got a verse? And then she was tight. And then I sat down with her and got her verse right. Then Pross put his verse. And that record was just so much about putting them in pocket. Like, forget that y'all have, in that first session, Clef saying stuff that he would use two and three albums later. Born in the Brooklyn town. Hey, Rastaman. He was doing everything. And I was like, no, no, chill. We just need the rock. This block in New York. 
and then we're going to rock the Northeast and then we're going to take it step by step. So what I showed them was really important. And he said recently in the interview that they went to Europe doing the little promo tour. Then when they came back, they did a show at Jones Beach and the whole place jumped. And he's like, wait a minute. What did he just show me how to do? I need to learn how to do what Salam just did. So for vocab, they came back around and I did another remix, which is a good remix. But ultimately, their video remix, taking parts of what I did with their live version that they had, actually was there. And then I was working on Spike Lee's Clockers movie, and I did two or three songs there. And when I worked on Spike Lee's Clockers movie... I'd done another song and I was like, hey, you know, Fuji, I want to do a song for that. So we came by, you know, blessing that my father had a studio and that we had our own space to work out of. So it wasn't like I needed somebody's PO number or somebody's budget. They came to my studio, but I'd made that beat for Fat Joe. He heard Nappy Head say, yo, I need a beat. Him and Chris Lighty came to my apartment. Yo, I need it. I need it. Cool. Joe comes back in a week. He couldn't tell if he liked the beat or not. Lauren hears the beat and goes, yo, play that Fat Joe beat. Clef jumps up. We used to be number 10. So I recorded that song before they even had a budget for their second album. I recorded that song in my studio, and then eventually they got their budget, and then we kept it going and figured it out. And I technically was supposed to be on that song and then had the Project Head song. By the end of the album, they had already become their own producers, and I listened to what they were doing. And I'd also, you know, my spirit is not to try to constrict people. I said, Clef, what you got going on? Play Me The Beats You Had, and Q-Tip had actually mixed Mob Deep's album. He produced a couple things, but he let Tavi be the producer, and he helped mix it just to make sure it was knocking. So I was like, you know what? Why don't you do the album, and then I'll just come through and help you mix it. So that was the plan. And when I heard the beats for How Many Mics and for Ready or Not and a few of the other songs, I was like, you got it. And then he's just like, yo, that vote of confidence that I gave him and pushed him to be a producer actually made him that much more comfortable with going forward with it. And, you know, that was to me the mentoring spirit that I came up underneath where somebody showed me something. I know what it was like for me to watch Molly Mall. And then now Clef is seeing me work on his record and then telling him, now nah, you got to do it yourself. And now taking the training wheels off, he's running to it and going on to produce Destiny Child's first hit or going on to produce many different records. And I pop by and hear it and he'll come get that one single for me. And then he's running with the rest of the album because he's just, you know, stopping by the, you know, it's almost like touching home base. I got one from you. Cool. I'm going to go ahead and finish the rest of this wild idea I got. And that was just a blessing. But that process also showed me that I wasn't just a beat maker. I was a talent developer. I was the person who was going to help different artists now be there. Again, it went from the Fuji's at my studio, I'm buying lunch and they can't afford lunch to, yo, if you invite the Fuji's, it might be too much paparazzi. I'm looking at them on TV like, do I know y'all? Like, I couldn't tell if I knew them or not because they were so big and I didn't understand the power of what my studio was able to bring forth. So what ends up happening is by the time we got to the Grammys and it was like, wow, this is what it was. I'm now trying to figure out, okay, where is my ability going to and that I'm right. Like, and I was able to continue to take it, you know, use the remix route that I'll go into R&B spaces. And that's when I started working on Tony Braxton remixes and Jamiroquai and different things that were outside of my wheelhouse. But those records that I ended up remixing outside of my wheelhouse expanded my musicality so far beyond what hip hop was, just like the Fugees as a group push, you know, what the boundaries were at a time when it could have got really mundane. Let's talk a little bit about the score. The two songs that you did 
helped set up the score, which 1996 was one of the most pivotal hip hop years in history. Right. Uh, I, I call the 90s of uh, uh, the 90s a time when hip hop really just kind of exploded. It was a renaissance. Right, and right. 96, you know, Tupac had released his first album that year, but the Fugees came along that spring and right. changed the dynamic. I mean, then you had Busta Rhymes, then you had um, uh, Reasonable Doubt. Uh, I mean, I could go on. It was just, it was just one of those years. So The world with Nas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was so much that happened in that time period. And then you were a part of, you know, giving the Fugees such a lift. And then they became not just like a platinum group. They were a multi-platinum group and mm-hmm. uh, a global hip-hop group, which... There right. wasn't a lot of global hip hop, so I'm sure you're, 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 it changed. And I, I do, I got to give you props on um, the mahogany remix for the sweetest thing. With sweetest thing is a great song, right. but the way that you flipped that with the old hip hop song, I think it was a right. Veronica, old oh, Veronica, Veronica. Man, that was like that was that was fire. Um, right. And again, so you definitely had your foot on that. And then when Wyclef went solo, now you, that makes sense because you're saying you did a bunch of songs years past and then his first solo album which was a classic there was so many great moments musically on that album and you had your hand in that as well yeah i mean just in general you know clef would always be like i need that one record there's a song on the carnival called bubble goose yes i had a song that i wrote at one point i made an album that never i never put out called stash knife not flash i felt like everybody was so busy showing about how much money they had and I was like, but the guy is faking like he got money. I got more money than him, but it don't make no sense. So I was like, right. stash, not flash. I was in this moment. So I had a song called Took Off the Vest, called One in the Chest. Dag. I love that woman while she had to switch, <laughs> basically. So Clef heard this from me, and he came to my studio one day. He's like, nah, I need that beat that you had the song to. And I'm like, what beat? And, man, we went through my whole studio, and then we went to my apartment, and I'm going all day. I'm trying to find this disc. I'm trying to find this disc. And when I finally found it, he's like, yes, that's what I want. So then it became Bubble Goose, and he really wanted to use that beat so bad. So that was a song that ended up being on the score. But also it was just support. Like I would often pop by the sessions. I would hear stuff. Going to November. Great song. That he was making a hip, he said, I want to make the first, first hip hop orchestra song. So I was like, cool, but I'm sitting there listening to it and I'm like, yo, well, what are you going to call it? He's like, I don't know. I was like, put lyrics on it, stop playing. You could be at the Grammys with you and the orchestra doing what you do. And then I remembered the lyrics to go into November. So technically, I produced the vocals on that and I remember he's, he couldn't hear how it went. So I was like, nah, so, oh, oh. Because when he originally did it, he was like imitating like Supercast type flow. You know, the going to November. I mean, going to November. So it was really like almost like a dance hall thing he was doing. And I was like, nah, that could work on this. So then he actually sat down and did it. And it became one of his signature songs. Going to November, like Wyclef became a bar for so many people's rhymes. Yeah. Um, and then just being involved like in that right way, you know, with the time when you know, just popping up. Like, you know, somebody that to this day, if they any of them called me and said, hey, I need your advice on something, you know, Ms. Um, Lauren Hill, when she might do something, she might ask me for a delay or what effect is this on this record? And I'll tell her, and that's what it is. Like, just always being that, that, that spirit, that's where I learned my true value. It wasn't just making a beat. It was actually talking to people who could talk to people, you know, not just um, having an idea and being like, it's my idea. Speak to someone who can now take the idea and talk to millions of people. And being part of generational artists is really where 
it changed the trajectory of my career from just being about what beats I made and what I had to say to this is what somebody needs to hear that I will never, that won't even know I exist. You know what I'm saying? That's really where I took it to a whole nother level. And as far as I was concerned, Akon, I just realized recently Akon was on a remix of Fuji La that Wyclef and Lauren did. That was Akon's real introduction. But without a Wyclef, there will not be a acceptable international Well I Am or Akon or even yeah. TP. Yeah. Without a Lauren Hill, she influenced everybody after her and some of the people from before her. Like at the end of the day, what they meant to their perspective genres across all spaces of music. You know, there's like I always say, there's artists have timelines. So you have the timeline of your career. Hey, this was my good one. This is my bad. Then you have the timeline of your genre. If you can make a dent in the timeline of your genre, that's big. But then you have the timeline of all music, period. The Fuji's made a mark in the timeline of all music forever. Here comes the hot step which stands out on the all music forever. It wasn't just reggae in New York, you know, Tana Gardner, Paradise Garage meets reggae and meets cypher. No, this thing went to Sweden. I got the Smurfs singing it. This thing is in Wyoming. This thing, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like it's this yeah. is a whole another type of record. And you still eating off of it. That's what's great. Like everybody can't say that about their music that they still collect a check from a song. But let's talk a little bit about um, Nas because you then kind of get with Nas, who we you know was a hero, mm-hmm. and then you work on the Stillmatic album, which was ten years after Illmatic. And right. Stillmatic is a classic. How did you end up connecting with Nas and being a part and kind of going back deeper into your hip hop roots? So I was doing a bunch of different stuff. And I think I was working on a FUBU album when I was in L.A. Nas had a verse on Fatty Girl. And we were at the studio at the same time. When he saw me, he was like, yo, what up? Yo, you got any beats? And so then I gave him something I had on me. And then we exchanged two-way numbers. And he was like, yo, I need a track that's like... You know, the dark skies and the killer gangster, this and that, and whatever he described to me in this yeah. description two-way, I wish I could find my two-way and turn it on so I could take a screenshot of what that is. But basically, I made the track that became what goes around for him. Um, and it was just me, you know, vibing off of some answer rhythm reggae drums off a of super cat thing, and then I'm playing live organs and basses and guitars. But he was just so open, like, yo, I, nobody gives me a track that feels like this. It has so much energy and soul, and it feels like everything that I text to you, every word that he, adjective he put in there, it felt like that. So I made the track and sent it to him. And then he said, when I get back to New York, you know what, let's get up and do that. And that was just a serious pivotal time for me because basically the week he arrived back, my mom had passed on my birthday that year. And I was also asked to do a shot A remix for Lovers Rock. Oh wow. And on the same day. So I was sitting there going, Am I gonna do this or not? So then I'm dealing with my mom during the day and dealing with all that stuff and then also working at the studio at night. And when I actually say, Yo, nah, it's come through, do you wanna put a verse in the shot A? He comes to my studio now, he's like, Yo wow, this is your studio? Like, you got an SSL room underneath Studio 54? I went back and bought Soundworks, the studio that Teddy Riley did the Guy album and the studio that Shep Pettibone worked out of, the studio that James Brown and Staley Dan and all these people worked in. I went back and bought it. I did the first Fuji's Nappy Heads there, and I came back and bought the spot. So when I owned it, and he came, and he's looking at me, and I'm like, yeah, my mom passed. And he's just like, when? And I was like, yesterday. He's like, 
and you hear it working, like he just couldn't believe that I was still going and we did it. But I wanted to make sure that I delivered on whatever opportunity I had, regardless of what pain I was feeling, I made sure I did it. And I was also working with Left Eye at that time and she had bought me a, a, a plant and some other stuff. But then when we continued to work and that became the song, you know, um, what goes around Illmatic, Stillmatic rather, the real push was the following year when his mom passed because he didn't said his mother was sick when his mom passed and then he came back around and you know he had Akinelli with him they were all live at the barbecue together I know Akinelli since 83 so we were all like you know Queens clicked up but you know he realized I knew E-Money Bags I knew everybody else from junior high and from that other side of Queens because I live in the Jamaica side they live in the Long Island City left rack side right. but I still knew everybody because I went to school all over the place and I had cousins on that side of town what basically ends up happening is we start working on Godson. And I had moved to Miami at that point. He was working in Orlando after he finished tour with Usher that year. He went and took his daughter to Disney World, and he was like, yo, come through. In the interim, what took place was that it was the Hot 97 thing. So this is 20 years ago. The uh, battle with Jay-Z, Ether happens. He's up. You know, he goes to do Summer Jam. There's a discrepancy. I was working at Power 105, so I, I was a part of that whole, hey, come to the station, and he aired them out that night. That was that. Steph Lover in the house, big up Steph. Yeah. All the other stuff happens. But the thing is, I'm still Salon from High 97. I'm still not an employee, but I'm still Funkmaster Flex's right hand. I'm still right. Martinez's best friend. Right. So now I end up in a space where I'm watching what happens because I did feel like, you know, Hot 97 was being a little biased towards him and letting Jay and the Def Jam crew swing with both hands and then kind of making him have one hand behind his back and he was in a position. But now he's like, yo, come to Orlando, I'm recording. So when I go there and I'm hearing what's going on, I'm like, all right, how am I going to handle this? So what I did was I just dug in and we had a conversation where he was, we talked about, um, I Ain't No Joke video. How that was the first time we saw Rakim with I Ain't No Joke, because I know you guys saw Eric Beats for President. My melody never had said No videos. Video. Yeah. Well, we saw that Flavor Flav was in the video. We weren't that familiar with Flavor Flav being in there dancing, and that it had a certain energy to it, the way it was walking. Also, Run's House, and also My Philosophy, they all had a certain energy. So it was like, yeah, what's that music? So I was working on, when I moved to Miami, I was also working on a lot of Latin stuff. I was working with Carlos Santana. I did a song for, I'd done some remixes for Ricky Martin. Basically, remixes is the way that I would get somebody on my resume that wouldn't be like, how would you get that? Right. Well, do the remix first, and then I'm going to get into work with them. Mm-hmm. So I did a bunch of stuff with Ricky Martin, and I was like, yo, I'm going to put Ricky on Apache. Then, 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 Ricky, Ricky. Cool. I'm slowing down Apache to get the chop nice, and then I basically stumble upon what becomes Major Look. Classic. The major look energy was so raw that when I sent, I played it for him on a voicemail. He's like, "Yo, come through." So I drive my car up to my um, Orlando, and I'm in a space where I just moved to Miami. Mom's not here. Pops just moved. I'm pretty much dolo in Miami, away from my whole family and my um, epicenter of you know New York hip hop. I'm that guy. I drive up there, and. I'm like, yo, there's all these ideas we could do. I could put Curtis Blow on it. You know, I'm flipping on you, but it was like, we're Mills. And I'm going to get Amy Winehouse. I just met around then. I'm going to get her to talk like bad boys. I didn't know you talking to Nas around. I had all these ideas. He was like, word, all right, cool. But back to his original conversation, he was going through turmoil. 
And if you listen to the lyrics that made you look, he rock him did. Now let's get it all in perspective. If you listen to the Made You Look rhymes and think in Rakim's voice, he leaned on it just like I ain't no joke. He took that whole energy and channeled it. And even if you watch the video, King of the Town, yeah, I've been there. It's as if he took on Rakim's energy. I mean, that was black and white too, right? The way he did that video? It was, was originally it a- color, and then we wanted it to be dusty, or we were mad at right. it because it looked too pretty. And then right. we black and white a bunch of the video to make it have that yeah. BDP, my philosophy feel. Yeah. You know, bigger Fat Five Freddy that directed that. But just in general, we did all that stuff. And then, you know, we had the squash radio beef. I know I can, but I was riding with Alchemist. So I was like, yo, what's big then? Um, it's getting hot in here. No, oh, yeah, it's my butt getting big. And Missy, oh, you got a big grin and work it. I'm like, all right, we're going to fix them real quick. Yeah, I ain't going to support the kids. No, Wu Tang love the kids is what came back. So I was like, cool. I know I can be what I want to be. I originally, I wanted Alicia Keys to play the furry lease because she would play it sometime on the shows. Right. And I was putting Peace the President real loud. So Alchemist, I didn't know how to get to the studio when I got to Orlando and Alchemist and Lost Professor and everybody was out there. So Alchemist arrived to the studio and he watched me actually make Loop and Peace the President. I didn't add nothing to it, turned it up, played the piano because Greg Nice told me that Kara Ress had played the old piano on um, the bridge. The bridge is over. Yeah. yeah. So Kara Ress and he was going to play the baseline on the Juno first, like Supercats, um, Boops, but he played on the old piano. And then I said, G looped it. So I was like, boom, I'm going to play it on the old piano. He's like, the piano's out of tune. I'm like, it's all good. Just let me do it. And then I came up with the idea, big up Angela Hunt, who did the children's voices on that. She went on later to um, write Empire State of Mind for Jay-Z and Alicia. But I actually put together the idea for that. And then even then, you know, it was all the, it's not going to sign with Murder, Inc. and all this stuff. And I was like, nah. So I'm Queen Street guy. I know exactly what's going on. So I'm like, you know what? We doing riding to the top. So, hey, Nas, I put Claudette Ortiz on it, who I was working with them, still from the city I Wycliffe connection. And then eventually Nas put a Khalees on it. But I was like, we got riding to the top. That ain't going away. We got these three. And then, you know, Get Down was Nas's idea. Zone Out was his crew. And that was my contribution to Godson, which is 20 years ago. But it was so important to have something that was rock solid that now when we get back to New York, somebody comes to me. Hakeem from Channel Live comes to me. He's like, yo, Flex played made you look in the club. I'm like, really? All right, cool. I was like, yo, I could squash this beef. You want me to squash it? Cool. So then I walked over to Hot 97. Flex sees me. He's like, yo, the beat is hot. I was like, yo, let's take a ride. I need to talk to you. And I basically ended up squashing the beef between Nas and Flex. You know, yeah. um, it was important. You know, I looked for Angie to squash it with her, but she was mad, you know, which understandably, you know, she yeah. told me that she was just mad because we were so close and how could I be around him at that time? Yeah. But also, I felt like was I was handling stuff for the greater good and I also was making sure that nothing else came from him towards them. You know what I'm saying? Right. That could have really went left and um, it's great to see how it all turned out and how Jay-Z became a elder statesman for the industry and you know brought Nas with him to Def Jam and and then you work with Nas on several other projects but let's talk about um Amy Winehouse because you said you met her talk a little bit about your connection I'm I'm sure that because of your global reaction to all of the remixes that you were doing for a lot of non-urban artists you're in the UK and then and then of course with the Fugees you are a name that people like maybe I should work with but where did she come along? So first of all, I have to big up Guy Moot, who 
He's now the chairman at Warner Chapel, the co-chairman of Warner Chapel Publishing Worldwide. But at that time, he was at EMI Publishing based out of London. So he had known me from his friend uh, Patrick was managing Bobby Condon. So he would always see me in the studio doing stuff. And he would say, hey, you know what? Do you want to do a publishing deal? And that first publishing deal I did with him, during that first term, I had Here Comes the Hot Stepper at Fujila. Then he had Jamiroquai sign and convinced me to remix Virtual Insanity. I wasn't going to do it. Yeah. He convinced that me. That was a massive global record, too, by the way. Exactly. So I, I was like, well, Space Cosboy, he got all this funky Roy A and Stevie Wonder stuff. Why you want me to remix this one, the slow one? Right, right. He ain't even got no beat to it. But then I put the beat to it that helped to get some legs. It was there. But basically, I had a base in the UK because of that. But crazy enough, Amy Winehouse came to me. The record that I made the week my mom passed with Left Eye was a song called Block Party. And Block Party was the first song that she put out off her album Supernova. Yeah. On that song, the video, you know, that didn't really come out right. And she was kind of upset about certain things with it and the way the promotion went for it. But Amy Winehouse heard that song and said, whoever did that song is the person I can work with. So she actually went to EMI Music Publishing looking for me and ends up getting signed there. And then by the time my mom passed, I moved to Miami. I'm like, everybody leave me alone. Unless it's good people, good music, good money, don't call me. I'm semi-retired is what I said at the time. And they convinced me to, the guy said, take the meeting, just meet her. Cool. She comes to meet me on May 27th, 2002, left eye's birthday. So it starts, she walks in, she's playing her guitar and she starts singing and she's singing Girl from Ipanema. And I'm like, oh, you can sing. This is what my phrase like, oh, OK, because I couldn't tell if she was trying to be, you know, you in Philly. So there were certain people who were the real ones and certain people who were just miming, trying right. to be in right. the neo soul space. And I couldn't tell. So what I did with Amy was. I sat down with her and then I just used my artist development skills. Prior to that, they always wanted a different person to come in and write songs with her. Mm-hmm. Once I was working with her, it's like she's the writer. She can say these things. And I was co-writing with her, but really pushing her to be her best lyrical self. <clears throat> in that aspect of it, we ended up doing the majority of her first album. But what I did with that album was I made it very hip hop and very jazz and tried not to make it neo soul because there was so much of that that had happened from, you know, 96, 97. And now at this point, we're in 2002. I didn't like doing anything that was trendy and sounded like what happened already. So, you know, I used the same break that I used on Made You Look for Amy Winehouse on In My Bed. Or, you know, I had a sing over. Moody's Move for Love by King Pleasure, but then I put a reggae beat to it, but I knew that that was Frankie Crocker's record in the 70s. And, you know, when Frankie Crocker ended his show, was there I go, there I go, there I like that it was getting dark. My mother might be looking for me. That was so much part of New York culture for everybody that grew up in black New York to know King Pleasure's movies move for love because it was there. And, you know, big up James Moody as well. So it was just like those things. But as I introduced different stuff to Amy, it allowed me to not only produce on a level of, you know, working with this jazz artist, but I was also digging into my dad's jazz mobile roots to me hearing the Elvin Jones and loving, you know, taking to the A train. You know, we covered Mr. Magic. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, the, flipping the lyrics into the Grover Washington version, you know, and then. 
undoing that. Like we did so many things around midnight. Like we did everything that was jazz standard, but I also was going so hard hip hop with it and really just bridging it the same way that a tribe called Quest. You know, Cherry has the same drum, some tribes push it along. Like I was just really pushing both sides of it. And that first album for her became a lyrical space, but that's the album that inspired Adele to want to write. That's the album that inspired Sam Smith. You know, many of the artists that came after Amy were inspired by that first record, even more than Back to Black, because they just let them know that they were able to do it. And, you know, that aspect of artist development for me was really important. We won an Ivor Novello Songwriter Award, and she was critically acclaimed, but it wasn't necessarily a huge commercial success. Her voice was just... I mean, it was hypnotizing. She could sing. And that was no problem I had with a lot of things. I really, if someone really looks at my career properly, I work with artists that have distinctive voices. And voices is my thing. You know, anybody that I rock with, whether it's Jasmine Sullivan or Lauren Hill or even Nas' speaking voice, the tone of their voice is so distinctive. It allows me to do different stuff with the music because they're not just writing the music. They are the tonic in the music. And when your voice is really dope, now I can make it strings. I can make it soft. I can actually do other things with it. And, you know, the other part was I help people develop their lyrical voice. You can have your actual voice, but your lyrical voice is where people go, this sounds like something Kobe would say. That sounds like something Salam would say. That sounds like something that, and when people hear, you know, Rihanna's lyrical voice, even if she fully wrote the song or not, they understand her personality is in what she said. So now you start to develop that aspect, and that's really what I was able to help Amy develop. And then also just being, you know, a friend. You know, like my, my spirit is always to help people and to build stuff, not to be like, it's me, I, I in front. And, you know, a lot of artists that are the artists that everyone looks up to is there. So for to have a Lauren Hill who inspired a bunch of people and then to watch even Amy Winehouse, you know, be inspired by people who passed before she was born and continue to inspire people after she's no longer here. That's really where this is at, because at some point, I'm going to be that same person who's no longer here, but my work is going to continue to speak. And how was it with her demons? Because she was dealing with a lot of stuff personally. So how did, were you able to navigate the art with such a struggle that she was going through personally? When she was with me, she wouldn't even drink. I mean, her first album was kind of like she had a, sometimes she would drink, but she might smoke some weed or something, hang out, but it was right. never that. But I never was exposed to that. When I was around her, it was more like a safe space. And she really wanted to get back to Miami to work with me because that's where we did back to black songs that I did and the Frank songs. But then we ended up in St. Lucia for a minute. But, you know, a lot of it was, you know, everywhere she went, she had paparazzi chasing her and Savannah just became a circus. And that was those other aspects. But that wasn't part of my interaction. And even at any given time, like if I have my computer on right now, she would end up calling my computer on Skype or something like, yo, what you doing? Everybody sleep and then just sit down and talk. And our interaction was on a whole nother level to where we almost didn't have to talk. Like I could read her mind and she could read mine. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Then a second album came out, which was was phenomenal. And Mm -hmm. um, and then sadly, we lost her way before her time. I mean, she was so young. 
I think this about you because then you know then you end up working with Jasmine Sullivan, who I knew Jasmine when she first got signed. She was a teenager and RCA didn't know what to do with her, and so. But I always thought after I learned more about you and Amy Winehouse that "Bust Your Windows" what could have been an Amy Winehouse song. It just felt like something Amy would have done. It could have in a certain way, but I think that um you know with Amy because before I worked with Amy, I worked with another artist in the UK named Miss Dynamite. Mm-hmm. And she was like somebody who was more known for like chatting and doing stuff. And then when I worked with her, she kind of sang. And we had this record, Miss Dynamite T, that was big in Europe and different things. But then she had songs where she was swearing. She was like, you must be out your fucking mind. And, was, and Amy was like, you let her curse? Wait a minute. So then now Amy, when we're working on records, she's like, I can say whatever I want to say. I'm like, say whatever you want to say. I don't care. Right. And then she would say these ridiculous things. Every third line on Amy's albums, like if you listen to her songs, you know, what type of fuckery is this? Like she's yeah. taking whatever the swear is. What was the pumps record? It was a uh, fuck, fuck you fuck pumps. pumps right. And I actually yeah. had written that before I met her. Right. Um, and then she just liked it so much. She wanted to say, but she just loved the fact that I was letting her swear. And I wasn't sitting there going, we will never get on radio. And that's what happened when she had a song was called fuckery. Everybody's like, we'll never get on radio. What are we going to do with this? But then when it's called me and Mr. Jones, it's art. You know, so I just would take the emphasis off of the swear word and make sure that the art was so dope that everybody loved it. So with Bust Your Windows, it was a thing where, you know, same thing, like her label when she got signed. Because I worked with her when she was on Jive first with Pick Up Toy Green and she was signing it. Then that didn't work out. And then when Peter Edge signed her to J Records, um, he wanted me to cut over his song that I had called War with her. And she did it just to appease him. But during that first session, I said, no, nah, don't send anybody. I know her already. Let me just get with her by myself and see what I can bring out of her. And we did Lions, Tigers, and Bears during that first session. And Another then, great song. But actually, closing my eyes, I could hear Amy singing that, too. That so, was a beautiful record. So the reality was that Jasmine lived that stuff. Those are songs that I did she had already. Bust mm-hmm. Your Windows is something that really happened in her life in some kind of way. And she made a song about it. And her and her mom were sharp enough to make sure that those were songs. So then she sang the songs to me. Then I just went left with the arrangement and went all the way over the top. And I went to Prague and actually recorded orchestras after I did Rush Hour 3 with Lalo Schifrin. I went there and recorded stuff and then included it in her record. I financed the orchestras on those songs. RCA and J Records wouldn't pay for that on a new artist. Mm-hmm. I believed in the song and I believed in what her ability was and I believed in her pen. And once again, it was about letting her not have to be with 20 songwriters to do this stuff. Just the same way I said with Amy, the same way with Lauren Hill. What do you have to say? How do you want to say it? And their pen and how they express themselves lyrically was as important as them being able to hit notes from top to bottom. Jasmine's voice is incredible. But her pen is probably twice as sharp as her voice because yeah. she's able to take those songs and now deliver it to a whole bunch of other artists. And when they sing those songs, they sound like better singers because they're trying to sing what she can sing. Right. You know what I mean, so I think that, um, you know, for me, the Jasmine Sullivan experience, you know, and I got probably five or six Grammy nominations for best song of the year on things over the years with her from 10 seconds. So, you know, whatever songs that we put out as singles pretty much got nominated on that level because of the fact that she was there. And that was a similar thing that happened with Miguel. But I never, I mean, people can say that it could have been an Amy Winehouse thing, but Amy was already. All I want is you could have been Amy at Winehouse. That could have been her, too. The track was actually made for CeeLo. So I was working yeah. on CeeLo's Lady Killer album. Mm-hmm. And um, at one point, 
I was like, so CeeLo, you've been around the world, you do crazy. I have this recurring theme, Miss Dynamite T, Left Eyes Block Party. I always want people to go back to the block and people to realize, hey, no, you from here. So I was like, what happens when CeeLo Green goes back to Atlanta? So now he was going to call it Lady Killer 009 at the time. So I was like, all right, cool. Well, we're going to make 009. So what if James Bond went to Atlanta? That's what that track was. The boom, 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 boom. Yeah. It was like a James Bond sound there. So when I said, no, um, CeeLo, we can call this one the Thrillers Home. So he has a whole freestyle he did on it, singing like Al Green. It's a but he doesn't end up using it. So then when I first meet Miguel, the first thing we did was how many drinks? How many drinks started and we got through the first verse. He's like, yo, I just don't want to be another R&B record. Just like, nah, I want something with some guitars. More, you know, because that's what he had with Quickie and Short Thing, which was already around on mixtapes for him. So then I was like, guitars? And I thought about it and I pulled up that track. And then he starts singing and he's like, what should I do? I'm like, tell the truth. And then Miguel now finds his other lyrical voice because he was a songwriter already. He had things. But what All I Want Is You brought out. And then, you know, he left my house like, I'm sorry, I didn't really do good. And I was like, all right, don't worry about it. But I already heard him. And I went in the files and looked at it and moved the song around a little bit because I heard that what he wrote was an amazing song. And that became the name of his album, All I Want Is You, because of the fact that it just caught another nerve, but also the track is wide open. I'll give people tracks that are wide open and give you a vibe so that now you can put your vibe on it. And somebody doesn't say, I like this song. They go, I like you. And that's really what the goal is. If you, if you make music that makes people feel like they know the person who's singing the song, they're in your business. You can't stop laughter. You can't stop sorrow. and You can't stop nosiness. Once you start telling little bits of your business in your songs, you're not a tuned into your frequency trying to hear everything else that you want to say. Right. And that's really what it is. Erica Badu, after Tyrone, people heard her lyrics differently than they heard before. On and on, the next lifetime, they heard it. Your next lifetime, they heard it. But after Tyrone's, you can tell you. And they was like, wait a minute. She talking that mess. And then they heard Clever differently. They heard Bag Lady differently. They understood the brilliance in the lyrics. And I think that that's part of what I mastered is just focusing on the songs. I'm a vocal intensive, song focused producer. And, you know, even me being able to take a bunch of windows and I asked, you know, Miss Pam, I asked Jasmine's mom. If you heard this, how would you hear it? Because when I first did the track just on keyboards, it felt kind of Stevie-ish. Mm-hmm. And she was like, maybe like um, a tango. And I was like, mm, okay. And I literally went to Prague with the 63 piece orchestra and the Rodolphinum and, and, you know, the Czech Republic. And these people don't know what they're doing. And they're playing on Lions, Tigers, and Bears and that. But what they brought to it was another level of sonic magic. And that was my goal. You know, people were so busy going, you know, what drums you going to use for Jasmine? What breakbeat you going to use? You just going to use the breakbeat. And they thought that that's how I was bringing the hip hop. The hip hop was really in the lyrics, her bust your window lyrics and the fact that it's relentlessly rhyming something in a, such a poetic way. That's hip hop. Her hip hop was her ability to be able to say it. And now I can make the music as lackadaisical as I wanted to. The beat is barely there. The beat is barely there. There is no drums on my cycles and bears intentionally. It's just my bass. Yeah. You no know, Osley Brothers, you no know, reggae feeling bass notes because I wanted it to be really about her song and about her emotions. And that production level for me is where I want to be. You know, that's what I was inspired by, but also helping those artists go from it. So now see Jasmine's recent album, 
make all the laps and everyone to go on, you know, get her bows and album of the years and everything else. This is what we worked all those years for, for her to now be able to take her own process in her own hands from Miguel to be, you know, it's 10th anniversary of all I want is you, I mean, of Kaleidoscope Dream right now. And, you know, it's the same process. How Many Drinks was the first song we did the first day I met him. You know, Kaleidoscope Dream was made for the first album. And then Mark Pitts was like, now nah, we're going to use the other beat. And then he kept it and then made it, you know, the title track of the next album. So I ended up doing the title track of Miguel's first two albums just by working with him at a time when he was laying out the foundation of his career. Those are things that there's no way I could have possibly asked for the level of talent that I've had the opportunity to come in contact with. There's no way. Like, how can you sit down and say, this is the level of talent I want to come in contact with in the way that I work with them? Because they were all brand new artists outside of Nas, who was already established and just had a pivot in his career to another phase, which kept him going still another 20 years after that. You know, everybody was pretty much babies. They were 18, 19, you yeah. know, single first artists. And that's really been my artist development and my real skill that I developed is being able to work with artists at that raw point. We skipped over a reality show because I remember calling you. I remember it was a Saturday. I was running errands and I played mm-hmm. the song, the album from front to back. Mm-hmm. And I was just like blown away with Jasmine Sullivan's mm-hmm. second album. And I remember telling you about. That was the third. Third album, sorry. And I remember telling you about um, Mascara, which right. was like, gave me goosebumps when I listened to it. And I, I couldn't believe that the record company never like went with it, but we would play it like on our slow jam show but that song now that i go back and listen to that album but that particular song is so understanding of the success she's having right now and the, and the album she just put out like i get it like listen to mascara to to where she is pick up your feelings mm-hmm. um in this particular album and and again jasmine it, it just couldn't have happened to a greater artist you also worked on um girl on fire for alicia keys as well and that was another like massive, uh, massive uh, mood record. Big up Key Wayne on Mascara, because I had introduced Key Wayne during that process. Big up Ryan Press, who came and sat down. Big up Big Sean for introducing me to Key Wayne. Wow. And then big up Ryan Press for coming and sitting down with me at the studio and going through Key Wayne beats till we got dumb and everything else. And he also was just feeding tracks. And, you know, I was able to help him see how to produce more of the R&B stuff and his ability and that mood that he was able to put together between the trap energy that he was doing for Drake and Big Sean and, you know, Meek Mill and then putting those chords on it, that mascara or something else. And of course, Jasmine's been yeah. there. So I just yeah. definitely I'm going to big them up. But Alicia, yeah, Girl on Fire was, you know, I'd known Alicia since her Columbia Records days. And, um, you know, we worked on stuff. And that was just another thing. You know, it was really funny at that time. I ended up doing title tracks for everybody that year, which was, you know, Alicia's Girl on Fire, Anthony Hamilton's um, Back to Love, Miguel's Kaleidoscope Dream. And then to me, it's a beautiful surprise first and then of course you know leave it smoking later on leave it smoking man was that was a <laughs> i'm mm-hmm. telling you man you like you got some, i mean we had known to me for 20 years but that leave it smoking was different you always give everybody something different like you yeah. you walk away from that artist and you'd be like wow what was that like because leave it smoking kind of dropped out of the sky out of nowhere <laughs> you know it's for me is this it's kind of like is this there's a period where no. So at this point, I've actually, uh, on my 50th birthday, I said I've retired from producing. And I did it for multiple reasons. 
But most of all is that I understand when art imitates life and I understand when life imitates art. I also, almost as a DJ mind, you have to read the room. And when you're reading the room and everything is going the same, you know, Flex used to have this thing where it's like, yo, if I get on the club at 1 a.m. and the earlier DJs played everything, what am I going to do? Rest in peace, my brother Biz Markey. This would happen and he would come in the club and, you know, everything already happened. And now he gets on. It's like, well, Biz Markey's DJing. So first it was a spectacle. But then he comes on and he says, yo, where's all my ladies at? And throws on, let's get it on, boom, in the 90s. Out of nowhere in the hip-hop club, he's playing Let's Get It On by Marvin Gaye. And he says, oh, yeah, that's what y'all feeling? And then drops I Want to Sex You Up by Color Me Bad. And then turns around and throws on right after that top villain audio two acapella. Stop screaming. And now you're just looking like, yo, where am I? What's happening? And then in the halfway stop scheme and, and looking hard, I got a great big bodyguard. Then doom, 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 drops the J Rule, the damager I'm instrumental yeah. underneath Milk D. And now you're just like, what just happened? And then he right. goes into a set, but he just reset your palette into something new. Yeah. And, you know, basically by me making records that are different, my goal was always for the radio to be on. And then it stops, and then the song I made comes on. And then the song I made goes off, and then the radio comes back on. I just go to other frequencies that aren't there. And I always say, a good DJ doesn't play the song you want to hear. A good DJ plays a song you didn't know you wanted to hear. He's playing you something that, oh, wow, you took me on a ride. I didn't expect that, and it caught me. And now we're all like with the jazz, you know, the RCA dog, which are air in the woo. Oh, snap, that stank face that we make. Like, wait a minute. You know what I'm saying? If I was in D.C. right now, I might drop a let's get small out of nowhere or something that's just not even thought about. But I know the market. I understand what the market means and throw something that people might not hear all the time or sardines or, you know, sardines with Meek Mill on top. Like, I'm going to just do something outside of the box and have that in my tuck because I have to understand who I'm playing to. Musical gumbo. You you can just kind of you hear it. And that's what makes a producer great. It's your the way you were wired from birth. You're able to put that stuff together and that is a gift uh, because not many people can do that and that's what we love and you know ultimately like i said my my uh instagram i've made it into that you know it was a time when one of my cousins came to my house and he knew his way around and i was like how you know my way around here you haven't been here he's like well i saw it on your friend's instagram i'm like what all right, no more pictures inside my actual house. <laughs> so, you know, no more pictures inside my actual space. But now I've just started looking and I wanted to say, you know what? I wanted to keep inspiring my fellow creatives to know that when we put something together right, that lasts forever and just keep looking at it that way. When we hear songs like, whoa, that was a joint, you know, big up Cosmic Kev. He'd be on my page like, wait a minute. Oh, that's the joint too. You know what I'm saying? But once again, when I was around coming through Philly and you were there and Kev was there and I'm going to Val Shivey to get some 45s to going to do that and big up cash money and tap money. And you know what I'm saying? Like I was just outside just trying to figure out what different things I could pull together out of all the genres of music that would make the difference going forward. That's still the quest. The quest is to 
be able to make a mark on people's emotions with the music that is played. And unfortunately, sometimes when we have to play to the crowd, we have to go against our own sense of, is this really the quality I want? Because the crowd might just like what they like at that moment. And I didn't want to be the 50 odd year old man that's going, you guys don't know what real music is. I'm kind of like, you know what, let me just push back from the table for a while. And I still do movies and soundtracks and other things, but you know, let me leave this there. But now I'm going to leave some things for you guys to sample and really make sure that that's important. And, you know, I still have relationships where, you know, there's unreleased records I've done with Ari Lennox and SZA and Jesse Reyes and gazillion artists of the younger generation, Brent Fires and everybody else, you know, and, you know, I mean, you hit me about Gallant and I was like, yeah, I got some songs with Gallant too. And there's one that I put out, but my last five years has really been about doing for the culture after I was at, we didn't even get to it yet, but after I was at Sony for five years and then I decided to kind of get back in my own space, I'm making music because this is the frequency that I want to have, the frequencies that I want to be impressed with, the frequencies that move me. This is what I will cook in my house. And now let the people come to it. When you're producing or you're playing for a crowd, you also have to make sure the crowd is pleased with what you're playing. And when I'm producing, it's a service job. I'm working for this label and for this artist, and I'm delivering what they need and what they can't translate for each other. But when I'm just doing what I'm doing, all the music I've put out the last five years from Come Through and Chill Forward, it's just been what I like. This is what's going on in my house. And then I can continue to put these things out and let those things stack up. And I feel like that is a place where a lot of people, unfortunately, don't get a chance to create from for enough of their career. Some people get to this point where they can really have the moment and the time to do it, but Marvin Gaye needed to buck back to get what's going on out. Stevie Wonder needed to pull away from the Funk Brothers to give us his body of work in the early 70s. And so many artists have to see themselves as full-fledged artists as far as what they can give with each deliverance, not just say, this is what I think is going to work for everyone. Because, you know, that's every time the budget doesn't always work with... You know, the creativity and, you know, I've been blessed to have a career where my greatest commerce has been my greatest art at the same time. The further outside the box I go, the more it works, the more I try to do what everybody else just thinks they want to do. It doesn't work for me. You know, some people it works that cookie cutter thing. Cookie cutters don't work for me at all. Yeah. Well, listen, such a great career. I mean, we've been friends for years, so I always talk to you about stuff. I, I teased him a couple months ago because I saw a drug commercial that sampled Umi cheerleader. And I said, Hey man, you get your check for this. <laughs> Cause that's a nice check. <laughs> and like I said, the blessings come, you know, he, it was yeah. funny. He walked in my house and he's not having no plaques up all over. He's like, boy, if I can get one of these, it'd be incredible. And then eventually we were at a video shoot and I was like, so let me ask you a question. Your song was number one on billboard. Not for one week, not for two weeks, but six weeks. So tell me, was it your grandmother that prayed to, to make this happen? Because you couldn't ask for it. You wanted to just get platinum. Nobody saw you until you were platinum. But to have a, a record that was number one for six weeks on the pop charts, like this That's is so hard. a blessing. This is yeah. so, so hard. Yeah. And for you to have that left, if you would have asked for that, you know, what would happen? So God will tell you you're bright in Jamaican terms. You, you're too smart. You think, who do you think you're talking to? You're asking for too much. So now at this point, you know, 
to be able to watch many different things and be a part of so many artists' career. And, you know, even at the Sony time between Mac Wiles and Jordan Sparks and Hiatus Coyote, even Snow Allegra had signed to Sony at the time and she's still doing very well. And, you know, you know, different artists and just being a part of that journey, you know, there's so many things that happen. Like I said, I watched Wyclef produce the first Destiny Child hit. So even when I see a Beyonce thing happen, I was like, yeah, I was at the, the breaking point of when these things open the door. And, you know, that's really, there's no much more that I can ask for, you know, from 1986 to 2022, being able to say I put 36 years into creative music game. That's really dope. And now, you know, I spend most of my time helping artists now receive their royalties and make sure that they're getting the things that they should get. You know, Kenny Burke, big up Kenny Burke, just called me on the other line, you know, but we talk about riding to the top. Rides to the top. Oh my God. Yeah. That's yeah. his career, but then all night thing, you know, by the yeah. invisible man's band. And then, yeah. Oh yeah, you are singing on Ooh child. Yeah. The record that I remix is a remix of Ooh child by Leotis. Wow. You know what I'm saying? Like there's so many things and so many people who deserve their flowers and they're just due. And, you know, by working in the system, I've been able to learn so much that I'm helping people do that. And I have a whole nother level of a visual art career and um, a Web3 level things that I'll be announcing in the next 60 days as far as what I've just turned my life to doing now. But it's still based on the same thing, helping people, you know, be able to create and establish artists and emerging artists alike, being able to put them together and make things happen. And that's really you know, the blessing. And then the fact I can make some music too, that's cool. You know, yeah. so I can get over there on any given day and knock out something in a minute. But I've been, you know, just turned into more of an advisor to executives and artists and, you know, people alike, you know, which is similar to what my dad did. You know, he's just carrying on the legacy of making sure it's there, but making sure I get some beach time and pandemic's been rough, you know. 1-800-Flowers is texting me every week, like, hey, you know, is anybody this week? Like, yeah. I went through it and did a lot with, you know, lost a lot of people, especially on the New York side. And, you know, to this day, there's still a lot of people I know that are really ill in different situations. I lost a sister, Michelle, last week. Um, no, not directly pandemic, but just, you know, she had a rough time. Yeah. And a lot of people are going through it. And I feel like um, all I can do is hope that the music brings a vibration of positive energy. Hope that the um, inspiration to do something different continues to be there. And then also just try to take my time. I lived in Miami for a long time. I'll probably be on some other shores and coast and really just, you know, put the flag up for doing the right thing more than anything else. Because the right thing makes the right music, makes the right people. Excited to see Nas and Wu-Tang and Buster touring. I'm happy to see it. I watch it on YouTube every time somebody posts it. I don't know if I'm going out in the crowd anymore. You know what I'm saying? I don't know yeah, no, I feel you. I feel you. I don't know if I'm going to be at the Grammys touching 10,000 hands. You know, right, I've right. said that 85 to 90 <laughs> people that know me might not see me in person again. It might not happen. Yeah. Well, but, we need, to doc- we need the, the, the Salam Remy documentary. I hope this is the start of that your story because like i said in the beginning of this recording that mm-hmm. you are the forest gump in, in music and from a hip-hop perspective having that energy and then growing it to this global force of all of these songs that you uh put your fingers on um yep. you definitely have left a legacy and to hear you say that you've helped out and are helping out so many different artists even just to, to get their 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 royalties is you know it's, it's something we always see we watch unsung 
uh, all the time. And it's always a story about how I never I never made the money off of a particular project. But, man, we got to we got to get the documentary. And, you know, thank you for taking the time to join the Backstory podcast. And, man, what a blessing you have been to the culture. And I can't wait to see what else you're working on, because, again, the one thing about Salam Remy is he's so quiet. And so uh, Secret Squirrel, you really don't know what's happening until it happens. And you're like, oh, oh, you doing that now? So uh, I know you you semi laid back and on the beach. And um, I'm sure there's some other things that we're going to hear about um, that you're working on. So thank you, man, for stopping by the backstory. For sure. Thank you for having me, you know, and I appreciate everything that you do and, you know, the levels you've taken it from because still, you know, for your position in the business and what you're doing, not only with your podcast, but overall and, you know, in your executive levels, this also just shows how far hip hop goes and how far these aspects of what we saw, what we were still, you know, coming down through the years, you know, like I said, you got it in the blood like I do, but also there's so many other aspects. So teaching, you know, doing stuff like that, that's really where I want my legacy to go helping people. You know, I was teaching at the uh, Frost School in Miami for a second, but just doing so many things because there's so many other positions of talent besides Beyonce, yeah. besides Lauren Hill, besides yeah. the people who are in front, which are very important as a front talent, but it takes an army. It takes the nations of millions to hold us back, but it takes a couple thousand to put us to where we need to go to. Well, I tell you, there's never a day that goes by that I don't thank God for the life that I have based off a passion that I had as a young person and to be able to eat and feed my family and wake up every day and be a part of a culture of something I literally watched as a kid. I mean, that's amazing. And you, uh, you as well. And just to hear some of these stories were great, man. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Salam Remy. Thank you so much. Coming up on the next episode of the backstory podcast, artist, creative, humanitarian, EGOT award winner that's Emmy, Grammy, Tony, Oscar John Legend people make all kinds of records and some of them they don't even put out sometimes they'll have you play something and they don't use your part so I didn't even know if I was going to be on the album until I got a call from uh, a woman named Suzette Williams who was at uh, A&R at Columbia she reached out to me uh, was like uh, we need to know how to spell your name for the credits for uh, Lauren Hill's album the Backstory Podcast with Kobe Kolb is an Urban One Incorporated Reach Media Pod is Good production, hosted and executive produced by yours truly, Kobe Kolb, edited by Donkis. Follow us on Twitter at BackstoryPCC, on Instagram, Get the Backstory. Senior Director of Podcast Operations, Sierra Reed, for sales and corporate partnerships, Josh Romani and Michelle Marino. Digital Marketing, Walter Gaynor, J.R. Smith, and Tim Hall. Thanks again for listening to the Backstory Podcast.